Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union Pod, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This show will be talking about empty cups, America in color, Wolverines, U.S. strikers, top five leagues for young Americans, galaxy moving, German influence in the U.S., camp stories, and much, much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossier, soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this uh, Wednesday, January 10th in the year 2023? 24, excuse me. I am doing well. I looked this up. This is the first time since December 14th that we've both been in the studio together. We have been ships passing in the night, uh, back and forth across the uh, the country. Uh, you know, look, don't bore us, get to the chorus, my friend. Congratulations to you and your Michigan Wolverines. You were there. You were in Houston, right? Was that where it was? You Correct. were in Houston to witness it. Uh, obviously, the uh, pod earlier in this week was before the game. You were nervous. But my friend, with a with a smoke and a cup of coffee, it wasn't even a problem. Not only did your team play well, but the opposition did not play well. And so you take it home, not a, not a problem. National champions, congrats. Thank you, thank you. Shout out to Donovan Edwards, a player who Jack had completely given up on, but I still believed in. He had two <laughs> long touchdown runs. We got off to a great start. And then part of my expression, we d***ed around for a couple of quarters there, let Washington hang around, but then pulled away late, so... Yes, uh, Michigan's 12th national championship. Uh, very exciting, 15-0. and 0, uh, An end to an interesting season, to say the least. Yes. Uh, so all told now, when it comes to... Uh, who's your coach again, the uh, uh, khaki guy? Uh, Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh. Uh, what did he end up coaching? Like six or seven games, ultimately, when it all shakes out? And nine of the 15 games. Nine of the... Well, you know what? And he got paid something like $15 million or something crazy like that? Maybe Correct. Less. Maybe yeah, less. less than that, but right. a lot. But, but still, look, he, he brought it home. That's ultimately what uh, you and the Michigan faithful wanted, uh, and you got it. My wife, she, she I'm not going to say that she was happy, okay, but she wasn't throwing stuff at the wall and screaming and yelling. So I think she just says, fine, and she does send her congratulations to you. Oh, thank you. One, one note on your wife. Mm -hmm. uh, seeing the way Michigan and Washington fans were mixing together at the airport, hotel lobbies, restaurants, bars, etc. It did make, make me think of the year before when Michigan and Ohio State both lost in the semis. If those two teams had met in the final, it would have been here in LA. The final was at SoFi. What would that dynamic have been like? Because Michigan and Washington have no bad blood. So it was totally fine, very right. friendly. I didn't witness any negative interactions. But Michigan and Ohio State fans all clumped together like that. Yeah, I mean... Did you see that the the ratings for the final were less than the ratings for the semifinal? So, I mean, those those rivalries and those animosities, I think that they they play into things. So, it was much more of a did you feel like a, in a kumbaya type of setting for that final? 
Yeah, and I was talking to uh, Brad Zager about this right before we started taping. Uh, the title game almost ended up being slightly anticlimactic compared to the Rose Bowl, which was uh, versus Alabama and mm-hmm. so dramatic the way we wanted. Uh, one last thing before we move on. Uh, I flew back. I went Houston to Dallas then Dallas to LA. And on the flight from Dallas to LA, I was listening to the woman behind me and she was saying that uh, as soon as she got to LA, she was going to get on a connecting flight to Sydney, Australia. Oh my. Wow. <laughs> That's a hell of a <laughs> of a change and a layover there, but we know that trip well. <laughs> yes, 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 we do. Uh, have, you, have you watched anything? Uh, all I've got is I mentioned on our last pod that I was binging The Bear Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a couple of episodes left of that. I got back from Houston last night and I watched those last couple of episodes. So I've finished The Bear. Absolutely phenomenal. Cannot recommend it enough. Terrific show. Now you're not in fear because you mentioned in your last show that you've signed up for Hulu now. You're not, you're not fearing that you're going to get to the bottom of the, of the, uh, the well too soon here. Are you savoring it and, uh, as you go through these things? I got to say, I knocked out Only Murders in the Building and the Bear way too quickly. Uh, now I'm going to move on to Reservation Dogs. Once I finish that, I might be caught up again. So this whole Hulu thing might have only lasted me a month. I got a couple things. Uh, Fool Me Once over there on Netflix, eight episodes. Now, my wife, and maybe, again, it's because of my wife, she made it seem like, and they actually make it seem like on Netflix that this is a, um, a limited series in that it comes and goes, which then falls into my category of being able to watch. Eight episodes. Uh, it's still not very, very good. I didn't think it was very good. I thought the story was scattered. I didn't think that it was as whodunit uh, or interesting as it was made out to be. So you can watch it and it'll take up a little time, but you're, it's not certainly not changing your life. The other thing though that I did start, and this came out way back in uh, 2017, is America in Color, which is a documentary series. I think three seasons. First season that I'm watching is um, this, uh, the 30s, or the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, I think that maybe, or maybe the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah, but goes through the decades, and it's a historic look back. Now, part of the sell on this was the colorization. To me, I don't even care about the colorization of these old black and white movies. It's much more about actually seeing these, uh, this footage that they have, and a lot of unique and rare type of footage. And it goes all over the map when it comes to what they look at. So they'll look at the, the stock uh, market crash, and then they'll go to... Charles Lindbergh, and then they'll go to uh, the, the Ford company and what they were doing. But it's, it's a really a really nice type of um, primer to American history. And it just moves on through the decades and goes through all the big things that were happening and some of the individuals. So I uh, certainly recommend that uh, going forward. Uh, are you ready to light this candle, my friend? Let's do all it. All right, where should we start? We had some action today we're going to recap. But can I say something first before we get into of the course, games? Of course, of course. Uh, both the Asian Cup and the Africa Cup of Nations get underway this upcoming weekend. The Asian Cup is in Qatar, a country that you and I and Sean Sullivan are mm-hmm. intimately familiar with. Aaron Schechter somewhat familiar with. She got sent home early for disciplinary reasons, it remember? It happens. Um, and then the Africa Cup of Nations is in the Ivory Coast. Um, I'll leave it up to Sean Sullivan if we care enough about those competitions to talk about them. But lots of prominent players did get called up. So for the next few weeks, as we're doing our European previews and reviews, uh, you're going to notice Mo Salah absent from Liverpool discussions, Hungman Son absent from Tottenham discussions, Victor Osiman absent from Napoli discussions, etc. So I just wanted to get that out there at the outset before we get into the game. And, and you know, for those, because sometimes we talk about the, the, you know, the sport with 
I guess, the, uh, the assumption that everybody knows all about these things. Part of the discussion year after uh, year when these, when these tournaments happen is why do they happen in the middle of the season? Well, they're happening in the middle of some seasons, not all seasons right now, but there is a constant debate as to you know, why this should happen. Um, should the players go? And ultimately, when it comes right down to it, you sign these players. You knew what was going to uh, what was going to happen, and the potential for them to be gone for not just a uh, an extended period of time, but also a vital period of time. And when it comes to someone like Mosala, who is playing. I don't know if it's the best he's ever played, but certainly he's playing very, very well. That's a big loss for these teams. Now, they spend a lot of money. They theoretically have uh, depth in order to accommodate this, but it's always one of those debate topics that get, uh, you know, they get into the area of, you know, just because one country or culture uh, does something one way doesn't mean that everybody does it or has to do it that way. And just because one league, in this case, we could be talking about the EPL or any, any league out there, needs and wants their players in that time doesn't mean that what is happening and that tournament that is very, very important, not to, the, to, to that region, but also to the world, a lot of people tune into it, should have to suffer going forward. Do you think that this ever changes in the future? I think it should. I know that's a controversial take, but I don't know. They 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 seem to take it as a matter of pride that they're not going to change it. So well, they also talk about the weather and the the reality of when they play it and being conducive. And you know, if you come at it from a a, a player perspective and safety and and all all that, you know, that's a legitimate argument. It is, yeah. I, I there has been some discussion in the past about changing and about putting it in places where it can be held during the summer. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if they did that eventually. But right now, the discourse about it is very heated, as you mentioned. Will you be tuning in? Uh, yes, I, especially the Africa Cup of Nations. I like that tournament. You so, do? Yep. You, so you don't like, and what I hear is that you hate Asia. <laughs> Although, remember, I'm very high on Japan. They're my pick to That's win it. True. And That's so true. I, I'll hopefully Boy. catch a couple of their games. You carve out Japan when it comes to yes. hating Asia. Got it. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Where should we uh, move right. on to then? So speaking of Liverpool... Uh, and this is instant reaction. This game ended uh, not long ago. Uh, leg one of the League Cup semis. Liverpool with a 2-1 come from behind home win over Fulham. Fulham took the lead through Willian. And then Curtis Jones and Cody Gakpo scored for the Reds. Leg two a couple of weeks from now at Craven Cottage. Anthony Robinson started for Fulham. Tim Ream on the bench. And there was a little scare there as Fulham went up one nothing, right? And, uh, but with what Liverpool is in this 2023-2024 season, I don't think it necessarily should come as any surprise. From a U.S. perspective, you know, Jedi Robinson, we've talked about how good he has been this year and how he's turning heads and possibly there could be people calling and whether that's the right thing, uh, right thing or not. But, um, you know, the, the Tim Ream situation is interesting because I, I think Tim Ream, as good as he has been, and you could argue that over the last year and a half or so, he's been... You know, the best center back or one of the best players for our U.S. men's national team, if and when he's not playing and not playing consistently, is that a problem for Tim Ream? Because I can tell you, as you get older, that lack of consistency, it, it can matter more. And so I, I worry about Tim Ream as it relates to the, uh, to the national team. I don't worry about it as it relates to his professional situation right now. Yeah, I'd like to be, for him to be on the field, um, but, I, I, you know, if if it's not happening here, I mean, I don't think Tim Ream has any more levels to go. We already did that incredible jump that a lot of us didn't see coming. 
If he's got another one in his pocket, that would be incredible, but I'm not holding my breath for it. Uh, the other semifinal got underway yesterday. Middlesbrough with a 1-0 home win over Chelsea. Leg two a couple weeks from now at Stanford Bridge. I, I still think Chelsea move on there. I think we'll see a Liverpool-Chelsea League Cup final. Okay. Um, the Coppa Italia quarterfinals today. Uh, AC Milan crashed out of the competition. They suffered a 2-1 home defeat to Atalanta. Milan scored first through Rafael Leon. Uh, but Atalanta able to turn it around. Pulisic and Musa both started and went all 90 minutes. Yeah, so it's not good, right? You lose at home. Uh, Americans on the field. I guess the only possible way to frame it is that it's a cup. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a second here, about what a cup is, isn't, should be uh, going forward. But I don't think that this, that this result stains Pulisic or Musa going forward relative to more playing time and games in the future. Elsewhere in the Coppa Italia yesterday, Fiorentina, Bologna, nil-nil, and then Fiorentina advanced on penalties, much to Sean Sullivan's chagrin. Then earlier today, Lazio beat Roma, 1-0 in the derby. Uh, I mentioned AC Milan losing to Atalanta. And then the last quarterfinal tomorrow, Juventus will face Frosinone. Keep in mind, it was in Juve's last Coppa Italia match against Salernitana that Timmy Weah scored that incredible goal. That's right. So, I mean, I hope he hasn't... <laughs> I hope he's got, kept, kept some prouder dry. So, we'll pause here because over the last couple of weeks in Europe, we've seen a lot of domestic cup activity. The FA Cup, the League Cup, Copa Italia, Copa del Rey, etc. Uh, the likes of World Soccer Talk are pointing out the uh, Cinderella stories, the upsets as evidence of how great these competitions are and how their MLS mess with the American equivalent of it. But Sean Sullivan has noticed that a lot of the big teams in these countries play the kids in their cup games. So he's wondering why MLS is getting raked over the coals for it. This is all occurring against a backdrop of that whole MLS yeah. US Open Cup brouhaha. We don't need to relitigate the whole situation, but what say you? Well, I, I think it's important when something like that happened a couple of weeks ago with MLS and they came out with their stance relative to the Open Cup to recognize and respect that this isn't just some American MLS thing. And I know there is the tendency to immediately jump on America, American soccer, and in this case, it would be MLS, although it could be other leagues or entities out there, and say, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Well, it's not that we come to find out. This is, and it's not a dirty little secret. The reality is that especially with the amount of games and now the amount of tournaments and therefore the multiple fronts that teams are playing on, that the, the desire and the, uh, the attention wanes. Now that in and of itself is not necessarily something new. Even way back in the olden days when I was running around, cup games were different. And yes, you took players that were younger or player that had left less experience. Now, we, we all know that a lot of times in the Cubs, it doesn't really get serious for these teams until and when they are in the later stages where they can actually see the end game. And I heard a lot uh, over this last week in listening to uh, commentators and pundits out there talk about how neither of these teams, especially in cups where they go to replay, right? And we know the financial reality of the replays over in open cups, but saying, well, neither of these teams want this to go to a replay. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I, all I kept hearing was, but wait, aren't these open cups supposed to be about history and about romance 
and about the true, authentic, genuine part of the game that is celebrated. Uh, And yet, the way that coaches approach them, the way that players approach them, the way that media approaches them, probably not the way that fans approach them. Or, should I say, not the way that fans of lower teams that, to your point, want to see that that magic moment. And we've seen some of them happen. What... Where, where does this where does this ultimately end, and where does this go? Other than less games, pulling out of Open Cup, and therefore you do lose that that romance. But don't think for a second that this is just reserved for MLS and for the uh, and and for American soccer in terms of the uh, the attitudes towards Open Cups. In terms of the European weekend preview, uh, the Bundesliga is back in our lives back, after the baby. winter break. First game back Friday, Bayern Munich will face Hoffenheim. Sean Sullivan put here Harry Kane versus John Brooks. Quite the duel there. Well, that's what's up on the uh, on the graphic, huh? That's what they're promoting <laughs> over there. <laughs> you think, uh, let's see, you, you think that uh, the English are excited about Harry Kane's prospects and what he is doing over there? Uh, look, w- w- John Brooks, why, why is everybody trying to force John Brooks down our throats all the time? I, I mean, what he did was wonderful for the national team. I, I don't think, I mean, do you think that John Brooks can have a, you know, a coda or a resurrection relative to the U.S. men's national team like Tim Ream? I don't get that vibe. I think uh, Greg Berhalter is out on John Brooks. I think he's, I think he has moved on, yeah. you know, and, and. I think he will also very quickly move on from Tim Ream. I think he has gotten what he needs out of Tim Ream uh, going forward. But yeah, I don't see that type of resurrection happening for John Brooks, even if he plays incredible and shuts down Harry Kane. Uh, Dortmund, incidentally, awaited Darmstadt. There are some great games in the Premier League this weekend. Newcastle, Man City, Manchester United, Tottenham. But what really has Sean Sullivan's attention is we have an American center forward orgy uh, I'm going to rattle <laughs> off all the games and then we'll circle back and okay. give overall thoughts on the U.S. center forward situation. Okay. Uh, in the championship, Hull City versus Norwich. Josh Sargent, remember, scored recently against Southampton. That's on Friday. Then Saturday, the Eredivisie returns after their winter break. PSV versus Excelsior. The spotlight on Ricardo Pepe there. Also on Saturday, we hop back to the championship. West Brom versus Blackburn. Daryl DK, remember, scored recently in the FA Cup against Aldershot Town. And then also on Saturday, Ligue 1, Monaco against Hans, which means Folarin Balogun facing the team he played for on loan last season. So my, my kids to, uh, went off to school this morning uh, and back for their, what would be second semester, right? And they did really well in school in the first semester. And as they're walking out the door, I, I screamed at them, Janet Jackson, because they know when I say that, it's what have you done for me lately? And while you, they were good in that last semester, now they have to be good in this semester. I only say that because when we talk about someone like Josh Sargent, when we talk about someone like uh, Daryl DK, all right, we've had these moments and they've come out of the shoot with, uh, with goals. And for goal scorers, obviously that is important. But can you parlay that? Can you continue going on? We haven't heard a whole lot from Flo going forward. Again, I don't think that that means that he's not going to be involved going forward. As a matter of fact, I think he is... Right now, unless something dramatically changes, still at the top of that list of, uh, of forwards in Greg Berhalter's eyes, and I think in a lot of people's eyes. And I think that there's an absolute fair argument to, uh, to make. He is kind of the, 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 
the holder of the throne right now. And the others have to either rise up or I guess in, in many cases come back and try to grab it away from him. And what they are doing from a club perspective is great. But if, if Josh Sargent follows it up with, and I know, look, you can't score every single game. I get it. But follows it up with, you know, either once again, not starting and not, or not playing well, or Daryl DK doesn't look like he's, he's pushing on and is causing problems up there, then that would be a, reg, uh, a regression. So that's what I worry about going forward. But look, I, uh, I'm, far be it for me to poo-poo an American scoring goals. So keep it up, whether it's, uh, whether it's Josh, whether it's Pepe, whether it's DK, or whether it's uh, Flo Balogun. Incidentally, uh, the Liga Mex Clausura gets underway on Friday. I'm wondering with Brandon Vasquez going to Monterrey, Zendejas on America, who are the defending champions, Kate Cowell, uh, it sounds like going to Chivas, who are also going to sign Chicharito. Is Liga MX going to start finding its way into Sean Sullivan's rundowns more often? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this on the show the other day. This I, I, I don't think we can call it yet a phenomenon, Mossy, right? You wouldn't call it a phenomenon yet. But this possible trend in and of itself isn't a problem because, look, this is a market that we have incredible connections with. And I'm talking about MLS and, uh, and League MX. And so there's opportunities for players to go there, maybe more opportunities than over, over in Europe. But I do think that it, this, is, this is a bad look and probably a bad message for, uh, for MLS for these young players and to lose these young, in this case, when you're talking about Brandon Vasquez or a K. Cowell, young U.S. men's national team players to Liga MX, a major competitor, because the structure of MLS either won't or can't adequately compensate them. And that message is that these players, these American players, aren't as valuable as players coming in from the outside. And these young American players that are making MLS their, to quote Gon Garber, league of choice, when it all comes down to it, they're not necessarily going to be rewarded for that. And that's a, that's a dangerous game to play with that talent that you are purported to be holding up and fostering in the United States. We talked about a lot of young Americans playing in various leagues. Uh, when we come back, we're going to come up with a list of what the best destinations are for young Americans. All right. We'll send you on your way and your, your pathway, if you will. All right. Take a quick break. When we come back, that's what we'll get to. Welcome back. A little uh, coda to the uh, thing that I left you with. After I yelled at my son, uh, Janet Jackson, you know, what have you done for me lately? He screamed back, um, I still have no idea who this person is. So when I get home today, I'm going to crank some Janet for him. Uh, going forward. All right, where should we uh, where should we take it now? All right, so we are in the midst of a transfer window in which several Americans are making big decisions regarding their careers, and we know you always love to lend a helping hand, and people love lists. <laughs> so we thought we'd have you identify the five leagues in Europe that you think are the best destinations for young Americans right now. Again, so for this, we're going to take out. MLS and I guess Liga MX, uh, because those would absolutely be possibilities um, because they're readily available and so therefore easier. And I do think that they are of quality and of value to a young player. All right. So uh, coming in at number five, I'll just go from five to one here, would be La Liga. Guys like Johnny Cardoso, Luca De La Torre, uh, Musa, different players uh, that have played there. And 
I think that it is, from a stylistic perspective, something that American players would um, would not only adapt on the field. I also think, look, there's a lot of American players that have grown up in a, a U.S. where a lot of people speak Spanish, and so I think that that would be conducive because you have to think about those different things. Uh, coming in at number four, a place we've talked about a lot of these players that are playing, Daryl Dike, Josh Sargent, Reggie Cannon, Austin Trusty. the list goes on and on, players that have been in the championship obviously the second division over there in England. I did not include the EPL in my five. I don't think that that's the right place for a young player. Again, these are young American players to immediately go to. So championship comes in at four. Number three, Serie A. And maybe that has changed and grown on me over the years and certainly over the last couple of years. And we talk about Christian Pulisic and Yunus Musa now and Weston McKinney, Tim Weah, Busio and Tanner Tessman also in Serie B. So just... I think Italy has become more open to more American players coming in. Now, number two is the Eredivisie over there in Holland. Now, this is an old favorite and I think has a history when it comes to players. You look back at John O'Brien, and from a Brazilian perspective, we know that it loves young players. I know U.S. players aren't Brazilian, but Romarios and those types of players. Right now, Malik Tillman, Ricardo Pepe, Sergio Dest, um, Zach and, uh, and Taylor Booth, these types of players. And I think it just think it, it is conducive in general to young players and fostering young talent, but also specifically to uh, U.S. players. And then coming in at number one is the Bundesliga. And I might not have said this um, too long ago, but I do, and I don't think it's necessarily changed, but maybe I've come around to it much more in that I think that the Bundesliga, first off, has a, a system that not only fosters young talent, and we have seen it, and I'm not just talking about U.S. talent, but just talent in general, but also there's an appreciation for playing that talent and praising that talent, and then also moving that talent along if necessary. And we look right now in terms of Americans over there, and these are players that have a lot of experience when you talk about Timmy Chandler and Joe Scali and Paredes now and the Aronsons, um, Maloney, Downs, obviously Gio Reyna for now, P. Falk, these types of players. And you go back, whether it's Weston McKinney, who got his start there over in Europe, uh, or even back to Eric Winaldo, our friend Eric Winaldo. So I have the Bundesliga at, num, which me, at number one, which means, by the way, that you know something that's near and dear to you, France did not make my top five, Portugal, Austria, Belgium. They're all good development types of leagues. But one of the reasons why France didn't is I'm not sure how conducive France is to specifically American players. I'm not sure, well, the French have a trouble embracing anybody, let alone, let alone Americans. So I'm still not sure if that's something that's going to change over time. But right now, France does not make my top five. Thoughts, my friend? Yeah, on France, I've heard the rule there is if, if you can't pronounce Hans correctly, <laughs> you're not allowed to play in that league. But no, the emergence of Syria as now a popular destination for Americans has been fascinating to see. You, my friend, are the first ever American to have played in Syria. What was the level of acceptance then when you arrived in the mid-90s? Yeah, and then I, I left after a couple of years, so it was scorched earth for a long time. <laughs> but eventually, they finally let some Americans back in. And now it's, it's you know, the open door is wonderful that, that, to see so many. Um, I was a curiosity. Now, I had the advantage of playing in the 94 World Cup. And so there was a credibility associated with, uh, with that. But also, that was back before the Bosman ruling. That was back before the European community opened up to the extent that it has now. And so you only had three 
outside of uh, Italy that could play. And so it was myself and a Croatian and a, and a Dutchman that were playing. This is the time when you had AC Milan and you had a, a whole all-star team that because of a rules perspective actually couldn't even get on the field because you could only have three at a time uh, playing on, on the field. But it was the place to be. It was the most money. It was the most prestige. And while I had offers in England, Germany, and Italy, there was only one place that I was going. But I don't know, had I gone over at the tender age of a Gio Reyna or a Christian Pulisic, if that would have been the place for me to go. Because, you know, language barrier, a very, very different culture than I was, uh, than I was used to. Um, the soccer, I, I will raise my hand and readily admit that I was much more rudimentary, and I, and I guess raw, it's probably not fair to myself, but the education that the players get now and the tactical acumen that they come fortified with, even at a young age, I think is more conducive to, uh, to Syria. I would have been interested how I would have fared in the EPL. And as, as I mentioned, the EPL is not in my top five here. I, I just think that it is from a playing perspective, we talked about before, and it's not that Americans can't be physical and can't, but again, a young player, you got stars in your eyes and you get dropped into the cauldron that is the EPL. And when I say the EPL, it's not just the actual league. It's the culture. And it's you know, all the shit that happens off the field and all of the narratives and the tabloid and the, the, you know, the wags and the this and the that, all that kind of stuff that, that happens. I'm not sure getting your feet wet in Europe and getting your feet on the ground and getting steady, I'm not sure that the EPL is the best thing right off the bat. Might be good later on. No, I agree with that. But it's interesting. We focus on outfield players mm -hmm. from a goalkeeper's perspective. Then there is an incredible lineage of American goalkeepers in the Premier League, Tim Howard, Brad Frito, et cetera. In this day and age, Mossy, and I know I'm, I'm veering a little bit here, but it's interesting that you brought up goalkeeping. Uh, we know, we just talked about it earlier this week about Zach Steffen coming back from, uh, from Europe. We know that kind of strange trajectory that his career has taken. We know what Matt Turner, who, although starting for the U.S. team in the World Cup, you know, he's taken a strange trajectory with uh, first going over to Arsenal and now with, uh, now with Forrest. In this day and age where I think a lot of people make the argument that not only are our players better than they were in previous generations and previous iterations of the national team, but there's more of the quality that we have. As it pertains specifically to goalkeepers, I think, and let me, let me know if you agree, that you can make a much stronger argument that goalkeepers of the past, American goalkeepers of the past, were better than what we have today, which is strange because the goalkeeping position has changed so dramatically in what, what we want them to do. Am I off? No, you're right. Uh, now, I happen to love Matt Turner. Sure, sure. But overall, yeah, I, I think weirdly, as the U.S. has progressed in all these other positions, goalkeeping, they've regressed a bit. I don't think the U.S. is as good. But if you, yeah, if you walk into a room and we, and, and I got, Tony Miola and Brad Friedel and Casey Keller and Nick Ramondo and I don't know, Marcus Hanneman. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Who am I throwing up there that makes an adequate type of comparison and is competitive with that type of group and that type of generation? I just don't think that we're, that we're doing that. And in our, 
In our effort to become better as a soccer playing nation, we focused a lot on the actual players on the field and the field players that we, uh, that we have. And have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to goalkeeper? Or is this just a natural progression that any country or culture would take that, that was producing good goalkeepers for any number of reasons? And you can even go down to the fact that, look, we're a, we're a culture that most of our sports, you know, use your hand. And so maybe that hand-eye coordination is ingrained from an early age for a lot of these, these players. Or is it just a byproduct of us focusing all this attention and resources on the players out there on the field? And maybe, in a certain sense, neglecting the actual goalkeepers? Or is it a product of the game changing so much where you got to play out of the back so much that there's fewer and fewer goalkeepers that are able to adapt to that? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I definitely agree with your top two, by the way. With okay. the Eredivisie, it goes way back. Remember, Josie Altidore had yep. prolific seasons Michael with Bradley. Alkmar. Michael Bradley scored all his goals for Heronveen. Aaron Johansson even was very good That's right. in the Eredivisie. So yeah, and then the Bundesliga, this season weirdly hasn't been that great with the Geo situation. Brendan Aronson struggling at Union Berlin. But yeah, overall, over the year, the level of acceptance there is very high of Americans. Now, we said at the outset, this was just Europe. We were leaving out MLS yes. and League MX. If you were to put those two leagues back in, where would they slot in in this? So if let's say that you are a player uh, and you are, have just turned, you know, whatever, 18, and you've been in an academy for an MLS team. Let's take out the, you know, what your rights are and stuff like that. Let's just say you could snap your fingers and go anywhere that you, uh, that you want. So, for example, I wouldn't want that player. I would take MLS over La Liga. I would take MLS over the championship. And then it would get interesting if any of these three came along, and it would have to depend on the actual player what type of, you know, how mature that 18-year-old actually is. And I know we can even go back to 15 and 14 and 16-year-olds, but how mature that player is. You know, what's, what's the lineage? What, what languages do you speak? The style of play that you actually play, is it conducive? But yeah, I would put MLS and Liga MX above those two. So they would be in my top five and they would be, you know, even maybe ahead of Serie A. So it would be Bundesliga, Eredivisie, and then MLS, Liga MX. And the one thing with Liga MX, and we talked about this in our last pod when we were discussing the Brandon Vasquez move to Monterey, they have not embraced being a selling league to the same degree as MLS. So if you're a young American going there and thinking you're going to use it as a stepping stone to Europe, you have to be careful with that because if you do well, the team would be reluctant to sell you and you might end up there longer than you initially planned, which might not be a bad thing if you're doing well, but nevertheless, it's something to consider. Well, somebody asked me on X today about, uh, we, we had mentioned Brandon Vasquez going to Liga MX and uh, Kate Cowell going to Liga MX. And this person's point was he, he or she, I don't know what it was, preferred that they go to someplace like, you know, the Greek Super League or something like that. I, I would say that Liga MX and MLS uh, are better. And this is just the eye test, okay? And of of what this, I don't watch a tremendous amount of the Greek Superliga, which in and of itself says something. I will say that the prestige and the cachet of going to any any place in Europe, there is power and value to that, especially if you want to move want to move on. But the actual quality and your development as a player, again, it goes back to just going to Europe. That's easy. And, and that's sort of the argument for the championship because I frankly don't hold that league in very high regard from a technical standpoint. I know I've gotten criticized on X for saying that, but 
the English do hold it in high regard. So it is a good stepping stone to the Premier League if you do well in the championship. So I, I think that's what gets that on the list. Exactly. Rather that's, than you being exactly. that no, impressed with in, that league. I'm, a, I'm not enamored, enamored right. by the championship. I don't right. <laughs> get up and, and watch a tremendous amount of championship or recognizing it as an incredibly romantic and free-flowing and creative league. But as you're planning out your career and you're taking these types of steps, I mean, you have to be strategic about this. If you are a young player and you are looking to make that move, and again, it's it's the style of play. It's the city that you are in. It's how you and your significant other and all that kind of stuff fare in these types of environments. There's so much more that goes, uh, that goes into it. But anyway, tell us what you think your list would look like and what you would recommend and the advice that you would give to a young player who was coming out. Because we're going to have more and more of them that are faced with this. You know, we talked a lot in the last pod about collegiate soccer and what it is and isn't and the bypassing of the collegiate, the traditional collegiate pathway. And so now you're going to have these players that have development under their belts, but they don't have that club situation and they're going to have offers. People are going to come and they're going to say, this is why this is best for your development and this is why this is smart and strategic for that next step after you go to one of these places. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, ooh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. And keep in mind that our handle out there on all the social media platforms is SOTU with Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. Mossy, what do the folks want to know today? Uh, first up, a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Lexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Amy from Dallas. My question for today um, is, if you were granted ultimate soccer god power for a day, and you got to make one choice, if you could take one U.S. soccer player and put them into a starting position on any club, who would you choose, where would you put them, and why? Thanks. Love the pod. Bye. All right. Thank you, Amy. She's a return caller, Mossy. So thank you uh, again for calling back again. Interesting question. So I thought about this. I think I'm going to go with, uh, let's see, I'm going to go with Weston McKenney, and I'm going to put him in the midfield. Look, I know we see him now at right back and everything, but I think his best position is at midfield. And I'm going to put him at the midfield of Real Madrid. That's what I am doing. In and I know this might be sacrilege to you, Mossy, in a Casemiro type of uh, position. Now, I know they're different players, but I want to see ultimately what some of these players, when it comes to Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic, I know this is just a dream, look like surrounded by the best players in the world. And, you know, we already know what Weston McKinney can do, but I think that would be Interesting in that he wouldn't be asked to do too much. And there's obviously players from an attacking perspective (laughs) that do plenty. He would have plenty of possession. uh, But he also, I think, would endear himself to the Madrid faithful in the way that he works, the way that he plays, the physical nature of his game, and his also ability that he's now shown to adapt to different situations and to overcome adversity, which I think you are going to need because it's not always going to go right. What about you, Masi? Any, anybody stick out to you that you would like to see? 
Different player, same club. Mine would be Gio Reyna, Real Madrid. Reyna, to me, is the most pressing situation that needs to be rectified. Everybody else that's really important on the U.S. team is in a decent situation right now where they're playing regularly. Uh, So I want to get Reyna somewhere where he's playing regularly. And I just think playing for Real Madrid is the ultimate. And, you know, we talked about La Liga, the technical level there. And I think that league could be a good fit for him. So imagine Giorena pulling the strings as a number 10 at Real Madrid, laying on balls to Vinicius and Rodrigo and company. Give me a, because uh, I gave you a comp. Give me a comp in that type of scenario. Are we, uh, what, are we what are we looking for? <laughs> I mean, people's heads are going to explode here. But if we're talking elegant Real Madrid midfielder, I think Zinedine Zidane. Yeah, who's your, who's your, uh, who's the Brazilian that played in Orlando? Kaká. Uh, Kaká. I mean, maybe a little Kaká. In, in, I think uh, he's more dynamic Gio. than Gio. I don't, I don't see Gio yeah. taking off on these slalom runs like yeah, Kaká did in his prime. He's, Gio's got some stuff in him, but I, I'm here for it. I would love to see it. So that's a that's a good one. All right, what's next? Uh, next up, uh, another voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Alexi and Mossy, this is Josh from Atlanta. Uh, love the State of the Union pod. It's the best. Hey, I've got a, a random question. I thought Alexi might have some insight from his time running the LA Galaxy. So we have this amazing stadium in Los Angeles, uh, SoFi Stadium, where the Rams and the Chargers play. Yeah, it sounds like they're going to have World Cup games there. Um, and it's owned by an MLS owner, Stan Kroenke. Um, what... Is there any possibility the Galaxy? I know, I know, Crocky owns the Colorado team, not the Galaxy. But is there any possibility the Galaxy can move there? Wouldn't it be better for the league to have, you know, one of the founding franchises, one of the best franchises in the league, playing in one of the best stadiums in the world? Isn't there some way we can make this happen? Um, or pre- maybe there's not. We'd love to hear. Uh, your perspective on why that can or can't or never will happen. Thanks, guys. Okay, uh, Josh from Atlanta. All right, so interesting question, interesting scenario you pose. Uh, keep in mind that this would, in a, in a weird, strange way, be kind of full circle from what MLS started as and, let's be honest, tried and was and succeeded in getting away from, right? So when MLS first came online way back in 1996, uh, many of the teams were playing in American football stadiums, obviously stadiums for the most part that they did, didn't necessarily own. Um, and so there was a, a business problem to that. And there also was a packaging problem to that. And then the soccer specific era started. And by the way, Phil Anschutz, who is uh, the A in AEG, which owns the Los Angeles Galaxy, was the one that brought the soccer-specific stadium to a whole nother level after the Columbus Stadium was built. And this was, like I said, a whole nother level of soccer-specific stadium. Location, location, location. You can only do so much at, the, at that point. Not only did Phil Anschutz want to build a soccer-specific stadium, but he also wanted it to be kind of a training center, which is what ultimately now Dignity Health, back then it was you know, Home Depot and that kind of stuff, uh, was designed to be. All of that is to say is, number one, purely from a business perspective, so now you go from owning and controlling your stadium to paying rent in a stadium that, unless you're going to do some major things on the field, a la Messi-esque type of things, you're not going to fill up. 
And big stadiums, while they have all of the amenities, when they are not full, oftentimes suffer and the experience suffers. Look, it's, it is, to your point, it's a beautiful stadium and it's going to be awesome when it comes to the World Cup and they're going to build up the field and spend a lot of money and do all that kind of stuff. But I just, I don't see that as the move to make. And as a matter of fact, I would say if and when they move, it's going to be a completely different type of situation and they're going to go for a different location, one that they feel is more strategic. We've seen what has happened downtown LA with LAFC and how that has gone. And again, LAFC benefited from decades of knowledge and trial and error. And so they made a really, really good decision and a business decision. And it's translated obviously competitively on the field for what they, uh, what they are. But no, Josh, I don't see the Galaxy in any scenario. Maybe some one-off games in the way that they play at the Rose Bowl, moving to uh, SoFi. It doesn't make business sense, and I don't think it makes sense for the brand. What I do make, think makes sense, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I was there years ago with a shovel in my hand to break ground on that stadium, is, dare I say it, has the Home Depot Center, now Dignity Health, that training center become obsolete relative to what MLS, I guess we're at 4.0 or whatever it is, is trying to do with their stadiums. So who knows? Maybe Valanche says, you know what? I'm, I'm not moving to SoFi or anything like that. I'm going to build a bigger, better stadium than anybody has ever seen here in Los Angeles for the Galaxy. And I'm going to put it in a kick-ass location and it's going to blow I guess is BMO field down in, uh, in Los Angeles out of the water and what LAFC has done. Those are the types of soccer wars with a Z that I want to see. And I'm that, and I had hoped that LAFC would stoke, but they're not going to SoFi. Uh, if you're wondering how Sean Sullivan feels about it, he put in the rundown, personally hate the idea. <laughs> you know, the, the SoFi soccer dynamic is interesting. Yeah. Uh, my L.A. friends that are just casual soccer fans are all incredulous that SoFi is not hosting the 26th final. And I have to explain to them what the issues are and what's potentially holding it back. But, yeah, I mean, it's such a great venue. But in from terms of soccer, it's not getting as much love as you think. I mean, we, we talked about this when it all happened before, but I think it's worth repeating. And, and you know, to uh, to Josh's point there, Stan Kroenke is the owner of the Colorado Rapids. Stan Kroenke is the owner of Arsenal. Stan Kroenke went and spent, I don't know, two, three billion dollars on this state-of-the-art, and it has to be said, incredible facility. And someone along the way didn't raise their hand and say, hey, you know, not for nothing, but from a FIFA perspective, this isn't wide enough. Maybe we should make it a little wider because... To your point, they are going to have to go up and out now. That in and of itself is going to cost a lot of money. And as we said before, not only is it going to cost a lot of money in terms of the construction, but it's also going to kill all of those fieldside seats and suites that are such a huge part of the revenue going forward. So <laughs> it it's just boggles my mind that this is the situation when it comes to SoFi. But we're going to see it next summer. Uh, we will see it continued when it comes to soccer, and we will see it in 2026, but it's it's not hosting the final or anything like that. Uh, lastly, we have a question on X, Simon Allen. Uh, he asks, which Germans influence American soccer the most in history? 
Interesting. Uh, Simon Allen over there, the Dalai Lama of soccer. Uh, he does a podcast. He's been around for a long time. Um, let's see here. So when you go through it, you know, and I, I got this question on X, I, I went around and around in circles and brought up all sorts of different, you know, Germans when it comes to it. And look, there's, there's Germans and there's German Americans and there's, uh, you know, American uh, Germans that I've played with on the national team. And you go through, you know, people like, uh, like Thomas Dooley and these types of players. And we just mentioned, you know, with the passing of Franz Beckenbauer, how important he was, Jermaine Jones, um, you know, off the field, people like Werner Fricker um, and these types of people. But I think when it comes down to, I started with it and I ended with it. It comes down to Jurgen Klinsmann because the question was about influence. The question wasn't about positive or negative influence. And I think you can make an argument that, uh, that Jurgen Klinsmann, with what he did, I mean, the position and the power that he was given as the head of not just the national team, but national team programs, his, um, and this, is, this will probably fall in the positive column of going out and getting those dual nationals and um, spreading the net wide and far. And I would even say challenging people in terms of the way that they thought and those, you know, folks that had their heels dug in. But there's also plenty that, that didn't go right, uh, not the least of which is not qualifying for uh, 2018 World Cup. And I know uh, they tried with, uh, with Bruce Serena to come back. But... I think you are still seeing the results of Jurgen Klinsmann and his fingerprints are still all over this federation, all over American soccer, and certainly all over the men's national team and the way that we think about things. Would anybody different come, come to mind for you or you agree? No, I agree. But just one sour note, uh, the Spanish Super Cup is taking place right now in Saudi Arabia. It's a four-team tournament. The first semifinal was today. Incredible game. Real Madrid beat Atletico Madrid 5-3 to three in extra time. Uh, before kickoff, they had a moment of silence for Franz Beckenbauer, and the fans jeered the entire time. I have no idea what the beef is there with Franz Saudi do? Arabians and Franz Beckenbauer, but it was absolutely bizarre and disgusting, and it was tough to watch. I think it has to do with Qatar and the World Cup and stuff like I that. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, come on, that's uh, that's ridiculous. All right, uh, we don't want to end it on a uh, on a sour note, so we're <laughs> going to come back here with a little positivity, and I'll tell you a few stories here in my one for the road about the camp and the national team camp, what it is and what it isn't. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Uh, with this this camp, this national team camp upon us, Mossy, and a more lengthy type of national team camp, I, I got to thinking about what national team camps were back in the day, back in the 1900s, back in the previous century, long time ago when it comes to uh, uh, you know me and the national team. But I, I got to feel that some things haven't changed. I said before that I think, for example, when a Christian Pulisic gets on that plane and flies to wherever it is, oftentimes back to the United States to represent what I feel is the greatest country in the world, I got a feeling that there is a, a, a fire and an excitement. Uh, and and it's, it's a returning to something that is comfortable and that is home, not just the actual home, but the home of the national team. And that's fostered sometimes over time, but I think that it lives in a lot of players, especially ones that kind of grew up in the United States and with this 
development system. I think back to the first time that I was ever called into the, uh, the national team. And uh, I remember, I might have told you this before, but our friend Eric Winalda was already a figure on the national team, having played in the 1990 World Cup and gotten a red card in the 1990 World Cup. Uh, but I walked into the camp and proceeded to make my way to the pool slash um, uh, sauna, you know, uh, hot tub type of area, which is where I found Eric Winalda. And he said, come on over here. And he invited me over to the hot tub and he had beers there. And we sat in the hot tub and this was my first experience ever in a national team camp. And there was Eric Winalda, a guy that I had seen play in the World Cup, offering me a beer. Uh, camps take on, even camps within themselves, take on a life of their own. They are, you know, little microcosms of the world. And there is an element of Lord of the Flies, and there are strange dynamics within. There is competition uh, to show well. There is competition within players. I remember vividly looking at my competition when it came to a center back position when I first came into the national team and looking across at another player who had played in the 90 World Cup, John Doyle, a center back, and knowing that's who I have to beat out. Uh, so there is that. And so there, while they are, while, the, the, while there is a camaraderie, there is also a ruthlessness that I think permeates a lot of, of camps. And there is also, you know, a level of angst and nervousness for players because they know that this can change their life. This can change their trajectory. This can change their value. And while the camp that we're talking about right now is much more kind of, of, a, of a young, inexperienced type of camp and much more about potential going forward. As I said last show, you can really make your mark. And the experiences that you have and the relationships that you form on the field and off the field, um, they will all go into that pot of data that the coaching staff will sift through. And you're going to have, you know, good training sessions and bad training sessions, and you're going to have good games and bad games. You're going to have things that you remember, things that you want to forget, but it is awesome. And it's only gotten more awesome. I told you I went out to see the national team a little while ago and the amount of resources that they have and like, you know, 35 coaches and a coach for every different position and every different thing on and off the field that you have, you want for nothing. It's the way that it should be and the way that you travel and the gear that they give you. I always was amazed at finishing a camp and, and having this, this type of gear. Eric will tell you that I, <laughs> I would forget my gear all the time or give it away. But still, it was kind of cool. I was going to say, it's no longer beers in the hot tub. It's champagne and caviar. Yes, we've certainly, uh, certainly move, uh, moved on. But all, all of that is to say is that whether you have one camp or you have years and years and years of camps, they all have, take, on, take on a life of their own. But there is a constant thread. And that is the honor and the opportunity of representing your country. And I don't think that that fire ever goes away. At least for me, 
it, it never got old. And when I got on that plane, wherever I was going, I knew that on the other side, there was a group of guys that were going to kick my ass, but they would also have my back. And I, I got to feel that that applies today to this group of players. And some of these players that we see in this camp, many years from now, will think back to this camp and say, hey, remember that that happened on the field or, uh, or off the field. It's, it's a special place. And the more time that you have, the more special it can, uh, it can be. Anything before we go, Mossy? Yeah, one last thing. I want to bring this pod back full circle. We began talking college football, and we're going to end talking college football. Breaking news as we were taping. Yes. Legendary Alabama coach Nick Saban is retiring. The ultimate testament to his greatness is that I have never seen Sean Sullivan so happy. Sean went to Tennessee. <laughs> one of uh, Saban's SEC rivals, Cat, went to Tennessee as well. Uh, and he is doing backflips in the control room right now. When he heard that news, he was ecstatic. But he would begrudgingly ad- admit that this is one of the greats of the game. Oh, that's the point. He's thrilled yes. he's not going to have to face him anymore. Is he, is he the GOAT, would, would you consider, of college football? Absolutely, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. All right, so he's gone. Uh, the dude up in Seattle, right? That uh, that that screwed up down here at uh, USC. This is how this is how my brain functions, right? Uh, uh, what's Pete his name? Carroll. Yeah, Pete Carroll. He chews the gum. The guy that chews the gum. You know, some guy on X uh, proclaimed Pete Carroll the greatest Seattle sports coach ever. And I did see an MLS guy get in there and say, "What about Brian Schmetzer?" Ooh, Schmetz is not going to take kindly <laughs> to that. My goodness. All right. Well, listen. You know, time changes everything, and Things change and we move on. So, uh, so, so there will be a new coach then for Alabama. Correct. The Crimson Tide. Yep. Yeah, I got that one right. Um, anything else before we go, Mossy? That's it. All right, listen, keep reviewing and downloading and rating and doing all the different things that you do. I think you'll all out there join me in congratulating David Mossy and all of uh, the Wolverine Nation. I don't know if you guys call yourself Wolverine Nation on the uh, national championship. Well done. That's uh, that's great. We will talk to you again next week. I will tell you this, that over this weekend uh, and in the next few days, Mossy and I and the entire State of the Union crew here are heading out to the coaching convention. We will be on site at the coaching convention. We will be uh, recording a bunch of content out there, interviewing a lot of people, doing a show out there. So we'll tell you all about it, and you'll see it in your feet. So we're looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. If you've never been to a coaching convention uh, and a soccer coaching convention, it is um, it, 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 you're knee-deep in tracksuits, my friend. Absolutely. So you're going to enjoy that. But until next week, and until then, size the 